Gone are the days when LPs paid fund managers a straightforward fee to oversee an investment vehicle, share the profits, and call it a day. Nowadays, questions about fees are abound. Do investors pay management fees on leverage facilities? What about subscription facilities? Where are fees on co-investments currently? Today, we'll hear from some experts to help pull back each layer of the fee onion for you. I'm Andrew Headland, editor with Private Debt Investor, and welcome to Spotlight. When investors began committing capital to private credit funds, they faced some novel questions. Private equity investors were used to the 2 and 20 structure, but the model clearly didn't fit with debt investments. Some debt strategies, like direct lending, are about mitigating the downside and collecting interest in transaction fees. Others, like distress for control, often offer potential for much more upside. Management fees in particular raised questions. Do GPs charge on invested or committed capital? The clear winner has been invested. In a survey of GPs by the Alternative Credit Council, four out of five debt managers charge on deployed capital. The study noted that the policy of charging on invested capital was a, quote, key selling point for investors. But what is invested capital? We asked Kirkland and Ellis fund formation attorney Erica Bertou. So without giving away the whole shop, we obviously have a lot of different levers when we look at what invested is. So if I was wearing an investor hat, I would say, well, invested is like what you have drawn down on my capital to put into a company and nothing else. From a manager perspective, I think the manager is looking at it. Well, invested is really the capital that I have put to work for you, not just your capital, but perhaps also leverage. Ah, fun level leverage. One of the unique factors of credit funds. It's something that LPs accustomed to putting money into private equity funds initially found confusing. That's what Cliffwater Chief Executive Steve Nesbitt says. Private equity people are not used to being charged on uh, levered assets. And so when they look at private debt and see that they might be paid on gross assets, which include levered assets, it's a little strange to them. From the perspective of the private debt investors, their argument is leverage is the choice of the LP. Basically, our value added is on the asset side. So if you, the LP, want us to use leverage, that's fine but you still have to pay for us generating return on the assets. I will also add that probably about half the managers, GPs out there on the debt side, charge on gross assets. Half of the managers out there just charge on net assets. So there's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a debate that has raged in the U.S. for business development companies, a special type of mid-market lending vehicle in the U.S. known as BDCs for short. Early last year, U.S. President Donald Trump signed legislation for BDCs that upped their allowable leverage from a one-to-one debt-to-equity level to a two-to-one ratio. The question was how managers would respond. Most BDCs charge management fees on gross assets. No one wanted to be seen as taking on more leverage to generate more fee income. So most managers made a decision to charge their base management fee, which is often 1.5%, on assets levered up to the previous one-to-one limit. Then managers charge a discounted fee, often 1%, on assets levered above that threshold. But it can depend on the manager, Nesbitt says. Well, generally, BDCs can be a good deal. It depends on the individual BDC. I will say that BDC fees are generally higher than they are for private funds. You know, I use the institutional number of approximately 3% for institutional funds. I think BDCs, the average is over 4% all in. The question is whether a similar dynamic played out behind the scenes in closed-end funds. 
a rather opaque territory of private markets compared to the public scrutiny many BDCs get for being listed entities. In the Alternative Credit Council survey, more than half of private credit managers lending to large corporates said they used fund-level leverage. A similar dynamic existed for those focused on the mid-market. Another issue surrounding leveraging credit funds is the treatment of different fund sleeves. It's not uncommon to have a levered sleeve and an unlevered sleeve for a single commingled fund. So how do you treat the capital in the levered portion of the fund when the risks surrounding that capital are slightly different than the capital in the unlevered option? Kirkland's Bertu says it's common to charge separate fees. When they look at this from a net perspective, really it's a function of how much money can you produce for them. So in a levered, if you have permanently levered product, you typically have a higher target IRR, so you can afford to have a higher management fee. For instance... One direct lending fund that closed on more than $1.5 billion in equity commitments last year offered both levered and unlevered options for investors. The firm opted for $500 million in leverage. For the unlevered sleeve, it charged a headline rate of 1% on invested capital, according to an investor presentation from a U.S. pension fund. The fund opted for fee step-downs. This meant the fee decreased successively by five basis points for commitments above $25 million, $50 million, and $75 million. There were no incentive fees for the unlevered sleeve. For the levered option, the fund charged a management fee of 0.75% on invested assets with no step-downs based on commitment size. It also carried an incentive fee of 10% over a 7% hurdle rate. Then there's the issue of subscription facilities, which GPs use as a means of efficiently funding deals when needed. That way, firms aren't constantly drawing down capital from their LPs. The question arises though, do invested assets count as just fund equity drawn, or do invested assets include the subscription line? Here's Steve Nesbitt again. If you're an LP, you're getting charged on invested assets. Subscription lines that are used are also included in that fee. The purpose is one of convenience, and so every time a deal is done, particularly uh, so for private debt where you have a more frequency, more deals, that you don't have capital calls nonstop. So administratively, a subscription line makes a lot of sense. The abuse can be where it's used as a leverage line rather than a subscription line, and that's where LPs can become very frustrated because they want to get capital invested They have certain leverage targets or leverage expectations. And so when a subscription line is used to increase leverage beyond expectation, that becomes frustrating for LPs, and that's where they push back. This happens more on the private equity side than it does on the private debt side. But I think most of the abuses have been dealt with. We don't expect it to be as much of a problem going forward. More so than a private equity fund, a credit vehicle is recycled capital. When a loan is paid back and the fund is still in its investment period, the firm will just make another loan. One former fundraiser noted that recycled capital has consistently counted as invested capital. If a $2 billion fund invested a total of $2.5 billion, investors would pay fees on that latter figure. When you recycle the capital and you put it to work in investments again, from our perspective, it is invested capital. It's money at work. The question is, what do you recycle? Is it just capital? Or is it also profit on the investments during the recycling period? And you can see a situation where you recycled 
the capital and all the profits that that's actually really sizable. So I think it becomes a question mark for fund managers and investors. How far up can you go on the invested capital scale when it comes to what you're charging fees on? Then there's co-investments. So credit co-investments are really just starting, but more and more LPs are asking for co-investment opportunities on the debt side. So I expect to see it developing really along the lines of private equity. And co-investments have taken off in the private equity space. The California State Teachers Retirement System is looking to add 15 investment professionals focused on them. They are a cheaper way to get access to private equity. Well, private equity, the attraction of co-investments is that there's no fee charged. So large pension plans like to reduce their overall fees by doing co-investments. It's, it's very attractive. And, you know, almost without exception, these large state systems are building or have built co-investment programs. Where this is going, we'll see. But there's a challenge of capacity. And so now we have LPs fighting with LPs for co-investment opportunities. And that's also led to GPs really forming these co-investment funds so they can properly allocate across their LPs that have an interest. And also with those co-investment funds, charging a low fee, no longer being free, but charging a low fee for that opportunity. As PDI's sister publication, Private Equity International, reported in its recent in-depth report on co-investments, the commingled funds focused on co-investments generally charge a 1% management fee on invested capital in the first five years. After that, it decreases. A 10% carry is standard. You have to be very careful if you're an LP looking at private debt managers. A simple pick the lowest fee manager may get you a manager that really is more beta focused than alpha focused. In the same way that just picking a manager with the highest yield, you may end up investing with a manager that takes the most risk. So there's no easy answer here when it comes to fees on the private debt side. The barometer that one LP uses could be a proxy, though. The investment professional at a U.S. pension plan noted that the net return needed to outperform public markets. Put another way, is the pension plan still getting its illiquidity premium? LPs need a compelling reason to lock up their money for close to a decade. After all, if there's a better bargain to be had elsewhere, LPs will find it. That's all for today's episode. Again, the voices you heard were Erica Bertou from Kirkland & Ellis and Steve Nesbitt from Cliffwater. If you want to hear more episodes of the Spotlight Podcast, you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or PEI Media's various titles online. I'm Andrew Hedlund with Private Debt Investor. Thanks for listening.